But I was uh, told about Cam and Ewan, okay, and that they run this strong podcast dealing with PR and legal issues, okay? And those are two of the things that are very important to me because I have a lot of legal issues and I'm tremendous at public relations, okay? Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and Ewan Christie. That was quite the introduction for a very busy news week. Welcome to episode number eight of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Cam McMurchie, alongside Ewan Christie. Hello, Cam. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications Newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. And Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroonllp.com law. So if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. Uh, you can follow us on social media as well. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account is PR Law Podcast. So P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Uh, you can find us on those four social networks. And we're also on YouTube if you prefer to um, listen slash watch uh, that way. And um, we'd also pretty appreciate it if you could support us on Patreon. That means a lot. We put a lot of time and effort into this show. And you can find uh, that information on our website, prlawpodcast.com, and you can click support the show. And we can take your questions as well. We're starting to get some questions coming in. It's uh, it's exciting. We want to have a, a section of the show where we can tackle some of your questions. Uh, just tag us on social media with the hashtag prlawpod. So, Ewan, this week was insane. It feels like the world is burning. What's happening on your side? Well, you know, first of all, Cam, I got to say, um, I mean, I know you come from a journalism background, you're a reporter, but that was, uh, that was quite the scoop in the opening there. I don't know how you got the big man to give us a shout out, um, but hey, I'm happy you did. That's great. It's <laughs> nice to know that he's listening and he thinks you we're doing a good job. You would think that he's a little bit too busy to uh, listen to podcasts, but hey, if he can find time for Fox and Friends, he can find time for us. Well, hey, that's a great point. Yeah, he's had a he's had a a very very busy week. Uh, I I can't remember the last time I've seen so much stuff going on in the news, and uh, and I'm I'm sure you're sort of chomping at the bit to jump into some of that stuff, particularly uh, in terms of what's going on in China and what's going on in Hong Kong. I mean, here in uh, the Great White North, I mean, we've had a, a relatively quiet week, I guess, by by comparison to what's going on um, with our, our friends to the south and what's going on in uh, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, you know, there's the the George Floyd case, which is, has really been astounding in the U.S. So there was the announcement of sanctions against China last week. Uh, and then, of course, uh, COVID-19. So um, COVID-19 is not going to be as prominent this week, but, but we do want to just give a quick update. All right. So as mentioned, you know, we're up to over 6 million cases worldwide. 370,000 people are dead. Uh, in the U.S., 1.8 million cases overall and over 100,000 people dead now. Um, and in Hong Kong, we had the same sort of situation last week, which is most days we have no new cases. And then on one day, you know, when a flight comes in from somewhere, uh, usually Pakistan, there's a couple of cases on board. We had that last week. We had three new cases. I think it was on Friday. 
Um, and so, you know, that bumped us up slightly. But the one thing I want to draw attention to this week, and I'm going to put this in the show notes because it's kind of a recommended read, is uh, Vietnam. And you and you and I have been to Vietnam several times. I mean, I, I love the country. I love spending time there. It's one of my favorite places literally in the world to go. Um, yeah, but too. CNN a nice feature on them and the fact that they've had zero deaths from COVID-19. Uh, they've had 328 cases in total, which is very low considering, you know, CNN referred to Vietnam as a, a low middle income country. Um, so it's not third world or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's developing and it's developing quickly and their economy has been very strong. But the fact there's not one death, and of course, naturally, there's going to be some skepticism about that, about those numbers. Um, but they actually go into hospitals and talk to people and look around, and the doctors say, "Look, there's just not, they're not coming in. Um, this is this is truthful." And so CNN looked at you know how they were able to do that because it's quite remarkable. And if there's one thing out of this whole crisis that has really been noteworthy, it's the the countries that have been able to re really respond well you know, to COVID-19, to act fast, to institute policies quickly to protect people, and those that were not able to do that. And I think we know who leads that list. Wow, that's crazy. Did you say three, just over 300 cases? Three Vietnam, that's it. cases. Yes. And they, wow. um, you know, they closed that's, their that's border. That's astounding. Early. Yeah, they closed their border very early. They set up camps for, for, for any, uh, you know, suspected cases. Um, CNN breaks down all of the steps they took and how quickly they took them. And I think it, um, it speaks really highly just of the administration or the, the administrative organization of that country, which is, you know, it's surprising to me, especially that it's so close. It borders China, you know, quite literally. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, Vietnam has a population of almost 100 million people. Right. So, I mean, we're yeah, not we're not right. talking. I mean, that's that's just that's really, really astounding. Yeah. And uh, I got to tell you, as soon as as soon as there's no more quarantines on these uh, in and out of Hong Kong, I'm, that's the first place I'm heading is Vietnam. And I actually feel now good about going there. The fact they've been able to control this so well. Well, yeah. Hey, hopefully I hopefully I can join you. <laughs> you could use the use the vacation. Uh, I, I mean, I wanted to talk briefly about again, these unemployment numbers in the United States, which, uh, you know, there's been another 2.1 million Americans that filed for unemployment benefits last week. They're now looking at a total of just under 41 million Americans who've applied for unemployment benefits since mid-March. And that translates to a, an unemployment rate across the country of almost 24%, um, which is, I, I mean, that's that's crazy. Um, those those are really really crazy numbers. Of course, you know the death count in the U.S. is over a hundred thousand as well. Um, yeah, you, just when is this? When are these numbers going to start to uh, start to come down? I mean, I know they're coming down, but still, every week the the number of unemployment benefits that are being uh, or or files that are being processed in the U.S. it it continues to really be a shocking number. Yeah, the numbers aren't coming down. I mean, the, the, the growth is slowing. I mean, there's fewer people now going, uh, filing for unemployment each week, um, but the numbers are still climbing. And um, yeah, it is, it is worrying. I mean, we've touched on it before. I, I don't believe that all of those jobs are coming back. In fact, many of those jobs might not be coming back. And I think that's the, the, the real scary part. And I mean, this kind of leads into the George Floyd case. I mean, we talked about just uh, the possibility of social unrest. You know, I mean, the United States has a massive wealth gap, as everybody knows. And, you know, more and more of, of, of those funds are heading to the, to the, to the top one and 2% um, of income earners. And especially when you're, when you see this many people unemployed, 
Uh, and then you've got, you know, very emotionally charged issues in the U S um, you know, it's a, it's a cauldron, uh, of unrest <laughs> that, that really, I think is playing out right now, uh, in the George, George Floyd case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I saw that, you know, police have arrested nearly what, 1400 people in 17 U S cities. Um, you know, there were at, at least governors in not at least nine states activating, um, you know, the national guard to respond to protests, um, and we've, we, there were curfews. I mean, the, the number of curfews imposed, I mean, I think the numbers I saw as of last night was something like 16 or 17 U.S. states had, or our cities, major cities had imposed curfews to try and keep people at home um, to stop some of, some of the violence, some of the, some of the looting, some of the, just, just the, the crazy civil unrest that we've, we've seen over the last few days. Yeah. These are, these are the, you know, the biggest national riots in decades, really. I mean, it's, it's shocking. Some of the, the footage that I've seen. I mean, um, I mean, I'm obviously much farther away from the U S than I used to be when I was living in Canada, but I mean, obviously that's making big news here and in China. Um, but some of the videos on Twitter, I mean, because I mean, social media is so prominent now. We've been saying that for years, but there hasn't really been a situation like this in the U.S. on social media yet. And, you know, the footage of swarms of people, I mean, there was a case in Chicago where they had badly outnumbered the police officers and began attacking the police and were successful in doing so. I mean, cases where police officers were being dragged along the ground and beaten and kicked. I mean, these are things that I could not imagine ever happening. Um but the, I think the anger is so great. And I think I, I do believe that most of this does surround the death of George Floyd and just the inequality in that and the racism in that. I do think there's probably a few people with 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 other concerns out there as well, sort of taking advantage of the situation. But I don't think that group is very big. I mean, my I, I think the, the the outrage over that killing is justified. And I think we're seeing the result of years of that sort of thing happening without much recourse. Yeah. And I think what's, you know, what's really um, unique about these protests is, you know, if you look at the, the, the race riots that occurred um, re- related to Rodney King in the, in the early nineties, it was fairly localized, right? I mean, it was, it was occurring prominently in, in LA. Um, whereas this, I mean, I saw some of the footage, there were people protesting and looting in Portland. Um, so, I mean, just how widespread it's become across the country is at least as far as I can recall, incredibly unique from any of the, um, the large scale protests we we've seen in the past. And it's the first time where, you know, there is a president that is stoking the flames of this issue uh, with, uh, I, I think people are probably familiar with his tweet. Uh, the quote was when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And, you know, I know people sometimes downplay that and just say it's just words, but but actually it's quite powerful because it gives law enforcement, police officers, and sometimes other people as well, sort of cover to to take more stronger, sometimes lethal action uh, against against the protesters. And we've seen that here in Hong Kong too, when the when the Communist Party came out in strong support of the, the Hong Kong police. You know their behavior did change. It became much worse because they knew they were they were they were given that thumbs up. Yeah, uh, you know one thing I wanted to talk about near the end of the show, but I guess seeing seeing as we're we're there now, I guess um, I'll 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 bring it up is the the speech that that Killer Mike gave. You know, Killer Mike, who's one half of the the hip hop group Run the Jewels, um, he spoke at the Atlanta Mayor's conference, and I would encourage 
anybody to and everybody to go online and listen to his full speech. It's about eight minutes long. Um, it's really quite, quite remarkable. I mean, he, he's clearly very emotional. He, he starts the speech talking about how he doesn't even want to be there talking. He was sort of encouraged by a, a close friend to, to speak out. Um, he's obviously very, very critical um, of the police presence and, and how the police treat blacks in America. Um, but then at the same time, he talks about how his father um, is an Atlanta police officer. He has a couple cousins who are police officers. Um, and, you know, his message was for people to go home. And he, and he repeats this phrase, and, and really, I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. You should check it out. But talking about um, going home and strategize, mobilize, um, it's, it's really quite a compelling talk. And, you know, it's in these times, you want to be able to look to your political leaders to sort of step up to the plate and really speak to what's going on in the nation and speak to, to the temperament. Uh, and the climate of the nation. I haven't really seen any political leaders do that, but listening to Mike speak, um, it, it certainly really touched me emotionally, um, clearly touched him. And I know, uh, at least based on what I've read online, it's, it's touched a lot of Americans as well. Yeah. I, you know, because I lived through the unrest in Hong Kong last year, which, which also, you know, it didn't involve looting that way. I mean, there were some stores that were destroyed if they were connected to mainland China somehow, but there were lots of fires and lots of destruction and lots of, you know, very violent scenes. And I think it's the first time that I understood the desperation of people. You know, when I was younger, when I was younger, I was a little more conservative, you and I'm still a bit conservative, more on the conservative side, but like I, I did look at people who were protesting as come on, like there's other ways to to go about this. This isn't, you know, causing destruction or blocking roads or, you know, a hunger strike that there's, there's more productive ways to do this. But, you know, as I get older, I realize sometimes there aren't, sometimes there aren't other ways to do it. Sometimes those avenues have all been cut off. And the only option is to either do something drastic or do nothing. And I think people, if they, if they feel strongly about something doing nothing, they can't live with themselves for that. And because, you know, I felt this last year, too. I feel strongly about, you know, Hong Kong's relationship with China and, and it's home for me. I have an emotional attachment here. I, I like the people here. I could go on about that. But when when you see somebody sort of putting their foot down on them or their knee on their neck. That's one way to look at it. Um, it's it's it is desperate. And, and I found myself saying, OK, maybe it is time to to up the ante a bit. Maybe it is time to. Do something more drastic and more dangerous because nothing else is getting their attention. And, and you know, I, I'm not fully supportive of everything that's happening in the U.S., obviously, but I understand it, I feel like, in a way that I, I didn't understand it before. I mean, that video was truly, truly disturbing. Um, I, I don't really know what else to say. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, if, if, um, if, I, if I was an African-American subjected to um, what a lot of African Americans are subjected to each and every day, just for walking down the street, minding their own business. Um, I, 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 you know, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, the video, the video speaks for itself. Yes. And I understand we're going to get to something similar to that actually. in uh, when we talk about, uh, uh, some stuff that you wanted to talk about, um, before we get to that, actually, we have a packed show today. We're going to come back to the George Floyd killing because there is a real PR marketing angle to it uh, that is, 
Um, you know, it's, it's a big subject for people in the marketing and communication space. So I, I do want to get to that uh, a little bit later. Um, but first, I mean, the other big news this week was, was yes, President Trump did speak about um, Hong Kong. You know, that night, it was Friday night slash Saturday morning. It was after, it was 2 a.m. actually, Saturday morning, Hong Kong time when he spoke. And I had to stay up because obviously I work at a Chinese, an international Chinese company, which needed to provide updates to our senior executives very quickly. So, you know, I stayed up for that and listened to it. I actually thought the speech was very well done. I thought uh, President Trump, he did not meander off script. The speech was well written and I, he delivered it very well. I, I was really surprised by that. I mean, because I've listened to so many of President Trump's speeches uh, over the years. And I think sometimes him going off script kind of provides some of the humorous moments of it. Um, but he was very disciplined on this one. And I, I'm not sure what it was about this that made him that way. Um, but I mean, it's it's very strong, the actions the United States are taking in terms of, you know, removing the special status that Hong Kong has. Um, and treating it basically just as, as part of mainland China now. I mean, the only yeah, thing. Yeah, Cam, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because you know, I think for for most people probably who are at least aren't familiar with with um, with the region, what's going on specifically, um, probably don't necessarily they're not necessarily familiar with the full repercussions um, of that decision by the United States to sort of revoke that special status. Can you can you speak to that at least a little bit? Sure. I mean, just for people's background, um, I mean, Hong Kong, there is a there is an international boundary between Hong Kong and the rest of China. So, I mean, we do operate separately here. We do have an elected legislature. It's kind of we have the Hong Kong dollar, not the Chinese renminbi, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it really is like two countries. Um, And if 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 a if a Chinese person wants to visit Hong Kong, they have to get a permit and then cross the border and, um, you know, get that stamped and, and come into Hong Kong. So. It has been very separate traditionally, and that's why the U.S. has treated Hong Kong differently, because, you know, it is it is a free society. It's an open and free society. You know, we have a free press. Our Internet's not censored. We don't, you know, our government's generally responsive to to people here. Um, but But the change, basically, to remove that special status means that for... Um, for instance, the trade war. So there, there are you know tariffs on on products coming out of, of mainland China. Those tariffs did not apply to Hong Kong because you know were, were considered separate. They will now that that's changed because a lot of Chinese companies did you know route things from China to Hong Kong to the U.S. as a way to avoid those tariffs. So that that window will be gone. There's talk about the Hong Kong dollar pegged to the U.S. dollar. I mean, the U.S. has to support that. It's very complicated to explain. But if the U.S. decides that it's not going to support that peg or allow that peg. Um, you know, the Hong Kong dollar could plummet in value very quickly uh, because, you know, we don't have the reserves here to, to defend that peg um, uh, appropriately. And then there's questions just over just customs, um, customs and, uh, and tariffs. And, and basically, as a free port, you know, things move in and out of Hong Kong without any tariffs for the most part. And that will change now as well to the, for, for at least trade with the U.S., um, and then the last one really is is visas. So there's some concern that it might be more difficult to get visas to visit the United States. Um, I mean, right now, Hong Kong people already need to apply, apply for visas to the U.S. Um, and um, they don't need one to go to Canada, though. So that's quite interesting. I'm not sure why there has been one to the U.S. considering. Um, so those are the those are the main ones. The last one that I think is the only one that really makes a difference is to put uh, restrictions on travel for any mainland or Hong Kong uh, government officials or anyone who has played a part in eroding Hong Kong's autonomy. So 
um, that would basically mean a travel ban from the United States for, for a lot of those people. I'm not sure if they're too upset with that. Um, but you know, that's, that's, that's another one, but I mean, all of this does have to be introduced and passed is my understanding. Um, so it's still up in the air. Like, when will this happen? Um, you know, how, how drastic is it going to be? Cause there haven't been too many details and knowing president Trump, I think the feeling over here is he might've spoken with a bunch of fire and brimstone, but it's not clear yet if he will actually take strong action on it. So it is still up in the air. And the last thing, the part that really made me sad is the, these, these changes hurt Hong Kong. They don't hurt China. So, I mean, the president said a lot of kind things about Hong Kong in his speech. Um, but these, you know, China's fine if Hong Kong is degraded in the world. I mean, I think they're, they're, they're absolutely fine with that. Um, and it's unfortunate that it's people here that are going to pay the price. And so on that part, I, I've, I've had difficulty with, even since the first um, Hong Kong um, Democratic, I can't remember the name of the act now, but ever since that was introduced last year, I had that feeling that um, this is this is picking on the wrong guy. Uh, but that's where we are. It's 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 really I mean, it's sad, right? It, more, more than anything, it's just it's sort of sad. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of hyperbole and I'm sure, you know, you can speak to that certainly better than I can um, online in terms of, you know, this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of Hong Kong. Um, but you know, I think there has to be some, some, some moderation in there somewhere, um, that this doesn't necessarily spell, you know, the certain defeat, um, of, of Hong Kong. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen that the city is prepared to, to mobilize and organize, uh, to get out there to, to protest and demonstrate to the world what's going on. Um, but you know, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on some of the, some of the media around that cam? I've been hearing it's the end of Hong Kong since I, I first started hearing about Hong Kong. I mean, this is some, this is not new. I mean, since if you go back to the eighties, they signed, you know, the Britain and China signed the agreement that would hand Hong Kong back, I think in 1982 or 83 or 84, somewhere around there. But in the years before that, there was rumors of it. So, I mean, going back that far, I mean, there were concerns about the end of Hong Kong. Then 97 was set at a handover. There was a mass exodus of Hong Kongers and money prior to 97. Um, and then after 97, you know, there was the, the, the Asia financial crisis. Uh, and it just continued. Even in 2003, there was a big protest here about, um, you know, the, the security law, which was introduced at that time, uh, which was not passed because, because of the protests. And so I, I feel like it, there has always been this fear that Hong Kong is ending. And as a result of that, I feel like people are continually looking for evidence of that. So when something happens right away, it's here's, here's another, another, here's more proof that the end is near for Hong Kong and it keeps on going. Um, Hong Kong will be here obviously for a very long time. It's just a matter of what kind of form will the city take? And I do believe that China does want Hong Kong to be successful. Like, I, I definitely believe that. I don't think China does want to destroy the city. I think they would rather destroy the city than have it be autonomous. <laughs> but I think they, they would rather have it sort of on a financial side be open, very open. So, you know, the, the dispute resolution that's done here internationally, um, you know, the, 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 company rules here, the, the ease of setting up a business or setting up a headquarters, doing business here, all of that stuff, the tax regime, all of that will stay in place. And I think, um, and, and along with the British common law legal system, I think China does support all this and sees the value of this. They just don't want this constant uh, undermining of their own authority and attention. 
um, because it does lose face. And it's interesting. I was talking to a mainland person the other day because there was a, a, a word that came out of, of Beijing that tried to soothe Hong Kongers fears that basically said, look, we don't mind if you protest. We don't mind if you go to the June 4th vigil. We don't mind if you criticize the Communist Party, but you can't do things like throw the flag into the sea or spray paint over national emblems. And it's interesting when I heard that because I thought, yeah, it's kind of about face. It, those things are, are very, they're very symbolic. It's interesting because mm. they're, they're minor things really, but yet so symbolic. And those two incidents of the flag in the harbor and the, and the spray painted emblems, that was shared widely in China. And that really angered people much more than the protests or, or the violence. And I think that's what this subversion law is trying to stop. But we don't know. We don't know until it's introduced. We don't even know what the text of the law is yet. Um, but we do know that it's going to still go through the, the Hong Kong legal system. So it will be, you know, if, if someone is charged under these laws, it will, it will be an open trial um, and we'll be able to see what happens. Mm. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, look, I, we also know Hong Kong geographically isn't just going to pick up and move. And for, for, that, yeah. for that reason, I, I can't see how this changes the fact that it will, you know, it's a strategic travel hub. It's a strategic shipping hub. It's a strategic financial hub, um, all as as a basis of its geographic location. That's not going to change regardless of uh, what's going on politically. And I think that's something that people need to keep in mind as well. And I think the overall approach to governance here won't change. I mean, it's, it's a highly efficient government here. Um, and, and you've been here. I mean, the transportation systems are efficient. Um, it's the one big city I know of in the world where you can be sitting downtown an hour before your flight takes off and still get to the plane in time. I mean, these sorts of things are, are going to continue, and I think they'll still be attractive. But I do think that companies are going to take a look at how this is enforced, how how eager will the government be to charge people under this law? Um, because, I mean, if it, depending on how it's written, I mean, it could be if you say something against the party on Twitter or on Facebook. I mean, is that enough to charge you with, you know, subversion or sedition or something? Um, you know, yeah, well, how, and it, and it, like where, where is that? Well, exactly, right? I mean, that's always the issue when you're when you're introducing any sort of bill, legislation, law um, with with broad broad language like that it's well i mean what does that mean <laughs> i mean I, I understand what these words mean in the english language but what are the what are the real implications um, from from a legal perspective how are the courts going to enforce it what is the influence of the mainland going to be on the on the hong kong judiciary in terms of um how these sorts of precedents are are established in the country um i i i don't i don't know i mean it's going to be very very interesting to see what happens the one area that i'm i'm confident that china has not interfered in is the legal system um i mean it it is it is according to british common law and you talk to the the chief justices here like they will say that like no one no one gives them a call to talk to them um and, and I think when you look at the verdicts that are coming out of Hong Kong, that has to be the case because there, there's people that China really dislikes who, you know, judges have, have um, ruled in favor of. So, I mean, and to me, that's really the only thing now that sets uh, Hong Kong apart from the mainland. But I think it's a, it's a really key difference. Um, and if that continues that way, I have a little more faith um, sort of in the future. It, it's, it's the legal system really is the last leg that's maintaining the way of life here and the ease of doing business and the comfort of people from all over the world coming here and knowing that they do have rights and they do have protections. And, you know, China can't just 
pick them up off the street and put them in jail and have them disappear, which is half, you know, happens all the time up in the mainland. Um, but there was one other thing I thought, you know, the, the story of Hong Kong is always, there's always so many contradictions. There was a tweet the other day that I saw from somebody who said something along the lines of he's already heard from one financial company that's leaving Hong Kong before the end of 2020. And they're relocating their, uh, their APAC hub to Singapore. And so it was, and he fashioned this as, you know, there's going to be more of this coming. And a guy underneath replied to this tweet and just posted a link. And the link was to an article that said Uber, Uber is moving its Asia Pacific headquarters from Singapore to Hong Kong. And they just announced that. And I thought this is, this is exactly how things tend to go. There's always going to be a bit of good news and a bit of bad news. And even in light of all of what's going on right now, there's a major U.S. company that's planning to come here uh, for their headquarters. So it's it's so hard to say what the future will be or how people will react until it plays out. Because um, in the media and in on Twitter and on social media, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of expectation, there's a lot of emotion. But when that dies down, you know, what are companies actually going to do? What are people actually going to do? You know, they have to look at things, you know, in a very sober way and decide what their next steps are. And like you mentioned, there's still a lot of very positive, positive features of Hong Kong for, for international businesses. Wow, that's interesting. I, did, I didn't know about that. Um, and yeah, you know, this seems somewhat reminiscent to me of what happened um, in the 95 referendum in, in Quebec, where, you know, the, the province came very, very, very close uh, to separating from from the rest of the country, and it, there was there were huge financial implications that that followed that. Um, you know, much of the financial centers and companies that that were set up in in Montreal, in particular, they they picked up and moved to Toronto, and everybody thought, oh, it's the end of it's the end of Quebec, it's the end of Montreal um, as as sort of a, a huge urban center within the country. And, and it was, I mean, for, for a few years and then things kind of slowly, but surely went back to normal and businesses returned and, um, the economy rebounded and it became once again, a vibrant center. I mean, it's different than what it was, you know, it will never again be sort of that, that, um, that huge financial hub that it was, um, as compared with Toronto at the time. Um, but it did find its legs again and i think it's um you know hong kong sort of a, an interesting comparator with what with what happened in quebec yeah and there's uh, a lot of things still need to be determined before uh before we figure out exactly how this is going to work out continue the debate with us on social media join us on linkedin facebook twitter and instagram at pr law podcast all one word p-r-l-a-w podcast send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com that's all one word ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag prlawpod that's hashtag p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d all right, you dog, what have you got going on? Yeah, so I wanted to to talk about the Amy Cooper case. Um, I, I know probably a lot Ooh. of our listeners have heard about this or or seen the, the video that was circulated quite wild, widely on social media and um, different different websites. Uh, for okay, those, this is new for me. Sorry? Yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to, 
this is new for me. I had not actually heard this. So uh, yeah, walk us through. Oh, okay. Through so, well, good. Good. <laughs> then I can put you on the spot. Like you put me on the spot a few times in the past. That's great. Um, so Amy Cooper uh, is was a woman. She, she, she lives in New York. She was walking her dog in Central Park, specifically the Ramble, which as I understand um, is a location that bird watchers like to like to frequent. Uh, on this particular occasion, she was walking her dog without a leash. And in the ramble, one of the one of the, one of the laws of the park is that all dogs must be leashed in the ramble. Uh, there was a, a man by the name of Christian Cooper, uh, no relation to Amy Cooper, who was doing just that. He was he was in the ramble. He was watching birds. And when he saw Amy Cooper's dog wandering around and, and effectively digging up the ground and, and compromising some of the natural habitat of the birds, he called out and he asked her to put her dog back on its leash. And what followed, Cam, I could describe it to you, but really the best way to do it is to just play um, the clip of a video that Christian Cooper himself filmed of the altercation. Right. And I just want to say to listeners, you're going to hear the background kind of change, change suddenly. And it's because I was boosting the audio because at times in this video, she's far away from the camera and she's difficult to hear. So you'll hear it clipped, but I haven't removed any audio from this. It's all complete, but you'll hear that sort of jarring back and forth. Uh, Here's the audio. Would you please stop? Sir, I'm asking you to stop. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording. You please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble, and there is a man, African-American, who has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. There is an African-American man, I am in Central Park, he is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. And my I'm sorry, I can't hear you either. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. I'm in Central Park in the ramble. I don't know. Thank you. All right, so um, there you have it. Now, as... Amy Cooper makes abundantly clear uh, through through that video. Christian Cooper is African American, uh, and what what the audio doesn't make clear is that through the entirety of that video, Christian Cooper kept distance from Amy Cooper. At no point did he invade her personal space. On the contrary, when she attempted to invade his personal space, he effectively asked her to stay back to keep away. And her response was to make, in a very threatening tone, um, threat to call the police to suggest that he was somehow doing something wrong. But what, what's clear from the video and from the audio is the insinuation that she is going to rely on the fact that Christian is an African-American as a threat. She, she clearly, her language is guised in this very racialized tone of, I know the police are going to respond if I demonstrate that you're an African-American man, that that's going to further 
compromise your position in all of this. And when she doesn't get the response that she wants from whoever it is that she's speaking with on the other end of the phone, you can hear her voice become sort of frantic near the end, as if to suggest that there's some imminent threat. And of course, as the video clearly demonstrates through the entirety of this altercation, again, Christian Cooper is well back from Amy Cooper. Uh, he does not invade her physical space in any way, shape or form. All he wanted um, was for her to put her dog back on its leash. And as you can hear, he says, thank you at the very, very end. That's Amy Cooper putting her dog on its leash. And then he turns off the video and walks away. Anyway, what happened after that, Cam, is what's really, really fascinating in all this. So Christian Cooper shared the video with his sister, Melody. Melody then posted the video on Twitter. Um, and from there, of course, the internet got a hold of it and and did what the internet often does um, and started doing some background research on Amy Cooper and they found out where she worked. Turns out she uh, was, and we'll get to the past tense explanation for that in, in a moment, a portfolio manager at, at Franklin Templeton Investments. And, you know, as I've learned, that's a, a multi-billion dollar asset management firm. The, uh, the company later that evening issued a statement explaining that, you know, it takes these matters very seriously. It was in the process of investigating and um, that Amy Cooper had been put on a, quote, administrative leave. Well, again, uh, that really didn't satisfy the the internet. And a number of people effectively started commenting and making some really, really valid criticism of, to the effect of, this woman's a portfolio manager. Can you imagine if you were an African-American man or woman that had to work under her management? How would you feel seeing this seeing this video? A number of people that that work or have some affiliation with Franklin Templeton effectively went to the internet and said, I will no longer have any involvement or dealings with your, with your company, with your company's funds um, until this person is, is removed. Sure enough, the very next day uh, the company issued a statement on Twitter that, and I'll read it. It's very short following our internal review of the incident in central park yesterday, we have made the decision to terminate the employee involved effective immediately. We do not tolerate racism of any kind at Franklin Templeton, end quote. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty swift response from the company. Uh, so Cam, what's your, what's your take to put you on the spot for a moment? This, there are so many layers to this story, really. I, I want to first say, um, I'm always reluctant on these videos to draw a strong judgment because um, we can see everything that happened in the video very clearly. And you can see that she is, I don't want to say hysterical, but she's, um, it looks like she's overreacting to the scene. And yes, her, her mention of African-American man a couple of times, it's very clear what she's trying to insinuate. Um, I, but we don't know how that interaction started. We do have to depend on what both sides say. Um, and so that, that concerns me a little bit, not that I think that there's something sinister about it, just that so many times there's little nuances that are not picked up in the actual video. Uh, and then I think it looks like when the video ends, he, he is walking away. I, I think it's probably fairly, fairly complete. Um, that's the, the first one, but I think, I mean, my, my, so she, she was doxxed basically, which is something that's happening a whole lot more with people online. And I think it's, uh, 
it's dangerous. I think people have to be careful of what they're doing out there because yes, you can be a stranger in a video and people can find who you are. Again, that's happened here in Hong Kong with the particular police officers that are caught in videos. It's not long before they find out where his family lives and where his kids go to school and they're harassed. Um, so I think people have to think about this a whole lot more. And then the, the Franklin Templeton firing her. I mean, to me, that seems like it's something justified because people said they were going to pull their, their assets from Franklin Templeton. So in that case, there is a direct business implication of her behavior, which seems to give them a little bit more cover in taking action. But my question to you is, if she was working at a gas station or um, you know, some, somewhere maybe not as well known, um, or not as big, would the employer have the right to remove her or dismiss her if there was no business implication to her behavior? Yeah. Well, the, the answer to that question, like so many things in the legal world is going to depend on, on where you are, the jurisdiction and the, the sort of applicable, um, employment law rules. I can tell you in Ontario, yeah, I mean, absolutely. In Ontario and in most provinces across the country, you know, and again, an employer can terminate an employee for no reason, no reason whatsoever, provided that termination isn't a violation of a provision of the, the human rights code. So really more specifically, as long as it's not discriminatory in some way, shape or form. They can terminate that employee as long as they give them reasonable notice of the, the termination of their employment. So, you know, regardless of who your employer is, if they looked at this and thought, you know, I just don't want that kind of person working at my company, be it a gas station, be it a, a, an asset management company. Sure, they can they can absolutely let them go, pay them their their severance and uh, and say that's it. You know, the, the more interesting question is, can they terminate them? for just cause. And again, just cause um, would result in the employee receiving nothing in terms of termination pay and severance. You know, and and that's that's sort of a more complicated question. So I mean, you know, if the if the employer had an employee code of conduct, for example, um, that spoke to racial issues of racial discrimination and that employee had signed it. Um, and if the employer stipulated in that code of conduct that violating any of the provisions of the code could result in just cause for, 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 for termination, then yeah, perhaps, um, you know, also did her behavior actually damage the image, image of the employer? I mean, I think in this case, yeah, it certainly did. Um, and as a portfolio manager, she's certainly senior enough to make the argument that, this is this could have implications for our our company's bottom line, and you know also Cam. I mean, if she's a portfolio manager, she's going to be interacting with a number of employees or customers, um, many of whom might be uncomfortable dealing with 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 a woman who has acted out in a racist manner. And again, that could also theoretically be just cause for uh, for the termination of her employment. I mean. So those are sort of a few of the points from a from a for cause thing. What, what I found sort of interesting about this story was some of the media response afterwards. You know, I, I read a lot of stories that spoke to the racial undertones, quote unquote, in the clip. And I thought that that was a really interesting and and somewhat bizarre choice of words, because I don't really see any racial undertones at all. I don't think I think this is about as obvious as racism gets. There's nothing 
There's nothing subversive about it. She she straight up at the beginning of the video says, I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. That doesn't get any it doesn't get any clearer than that. And then when her voice again, it sort of jumps, um, as you can hear at the end of the video, and becomes increasingly frantic. Um, that clearly was indicative of this woman demonstrating, trying to use, you know, Christian Cooper's race as, as a card to play against him and trying to up the ante of the threat level. And that is just so fundamentally wrong that as an employer, I, I would have a hard time understanding or believing that the employer could come to any other conclusion other than we we have to terminate this employee. I'm going to have to disagree with you on one thing you just said there about the racial undertones. Um, I think I, I agree with you on the point that, you know, when when you look at that video and I the first time I looked at it right away, it stuck out to me that she said I'm going to tell them that you're an, you're an African-American man. And like right away you think, Oh, I, I, I see what she's doing. It's clear as day that signal. But at the same time, she didn't use any racial epithets. She didn't say something that was overtly racist. We understand her racism through a signal that she sent. And that's why I think racial undertones is there. And if she would have come out and started calling him the N word or something horrible, you'd say that's, that's a racist attack period. In this way, it's a racist attack because of sort of her phrasing and we can infer what she's doing, right? But we don't we don't know 100% that if there was an Asian man there, she would have said an Asian man, or if there was a Latino man there, she would have said Latino. I, like, we don't, we, we don't know for sure. I think we can guess. I think we know pretty much that she, she's racist. But again, I'm just thinking from the, the legitimate, like, if you're going to write it down, can you say that she's a racist for saying the man is an African-American man. It's, it's hard to pin that down still, even though we all recognize it, if that makes any sense. Well, it, it, it does. And I think, you know, what's important is that contextually we have to, I think we have to take the position that yes, that this is, this is a clear, a clear act of racism on the part of, on the part of Amy Cooper. I think that's important because rarely in life, um, do circumstances present themselves that are so blatantly and obvious, you know, someone using an, an N word contextually, it's always the context. And this is, you know, this is, is, is like any, you know, virtually any argument you look at within a, within a legal lens, you always have to look at context. You always have to look at the unique situation and the unique circumstances. But when you look at this, sorry, go ahead. If she, if, if, if that was a white man who asked her to put her dog on her leash, do you know for sure that she wouldn't be confrontational? No, no, of course I don't. I have, I have no, no I, idea. No, no idea. Kind of what I, this is kind of what I'm getting at is we like, again, the, 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 the conclusion that we draw, I, I agree. She's racist and she was uh, insinuating that because of his race, that she was in greater danger and needed um, more help. So we can see that. But but again, I, I feel like if it were in court and you're the lawyer, not me, um, it, it would still be say to, like, this is a clear cut case of racism. I mean, I, her defense would be, I was describing the guy there. And if he was a different color or if he were Asian or if he was Latino, I would have said that as a descriptor. Like, and we don't, even though we can feel her meaning, we can't say for sure that that's not true. Do you know what I mean? If we have to rely on facts. 
Yeah. Look, I, I, I see your point, and I think that would certainly be the logical argument from the other side. Um, I mean, in an employment context, however, again, the employer has the discretion to to take the position that, look, sorry, you know, regardless of the explanation, we just we don't tolerate that sort of conduct within our company. And we take the position um, that this was an act of racism and we're going to terminate you and we'll pay you your reasonable notice. We'll give you your severance, what have you, but we're going to let you go. And again, I mean, an employer can do that, you know, in, in most provinces in the country um, at any time for, for any reason or no reason whatsoever, provided they give them that, that termination pay or that severance. Of course, if they want to allege that there's just cause for discharge and not pay that employee anything, then that's a, that's a much more complicated case. But I think, you know, this is also a great opportunity. And that was, this was something I wanted to get your take on cam for Franklin Templeton, because really in many ways, this is this is good advertising. I think it could be spun as good advertising for the company that, you know, one of its employees acted out um, in a in a completely inappropriate manner, and the company acted rather quickly. Now, of course, they initially said you know she was put on uh, you know an administrative leave, um, but I mean, really, the, the following day they terminated the employee and issued a statement, um, you know, condemning, condemning the behavior. And of course, I mean, I wasn't familiar with Franklin Templeton, uh, before, before this incident, you know, is, is it possible cam for, for the company to sort of spin this in a, in a positive way? Yeah, I'm so Franklin Templeton is very big. Um, they have offices here too. They're, they're, um, yeah, a very large firm. So I'm familiar with them, but they, um, I, I think they really had no choice. I think in a situation like this, it's not something because what they do, if they do not fire her, uh, then they're putting their entire brand behind her and supporting her. And it makes them a target just as much as she's a target. I don't think that, I mean, they would much rather not be put in that situation, even though there might be some sort of positive outcome out of this because they were able to take a stand. It's still a situation that no company wants to find themselves in. And I mean, this has happened, this happens periodically uh, where companies are sort of held accountable for the behavior of their employees. And I think in this case, again, watching the video the first time, the first time I watched it without any context, I picked up the African-American comment and the way she said it, and you can feel, you know, what she's trying to imply. And because it's, because that that feeling is picked up by, I'm sure most people that, that watch it, um, they had to, they had no choice really, but to let her go. And I think it's a, I don't think they should fire, fire her or dismiss her, you know, again, right away, as soon as they find out. I do think they, they owe her a little bit of due diligence in terms of, you know, getting the facts of the case and finding out what happened. Um, but they don't have a week to do that. I do think they have to do it fairly quickly, which it looks like they did. And I'm making these comments without knowing, without looking into their response at all. I haven't seen their statement or anything like that. But I think if they, if they waited a day, I'm sure that they probably talked to her to find out what happened. Uh, and then they probably had, yeah, their own legal counsel saying this is this is what 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 you should do. And they put out a statement. And I think that's sort of textbook handling from a PR perspective, although again, I haven't read their actual statement. 
Well, yeah, I mean, in the the statement is is brief, and frankly, I think it was a good statement. And I don't I don't know, and and perhaps you'll disagree with me, but again, I don't know that it needed to be any longer than what it was. I mean, literally, the, the quote is: "Following our internal review of the incident in Central Park yesterday, um, we have made the decision to terminate the employee involved effective immediately." Period. We do not tolerate racism of any kind at Franklin Templeton, period. End of statement. Yes, that is exactly the right way to do it. I think because it's um, a lot of CEOs or senior executives like to take these situations and add a bunch of sort of self-congratulatory wording in terms of, you know, this is not who we are and we, you know, we have these beliefs and they don't align and we've taken a long, you know, over a long period of time, we've been active in, in anti-racist activities by, you know, promoting awareness and blah, blah, blah. Like sometimes there is a, there is a, a real push to kind of include that sort of stuff in there. And I think when, when you do that, it kind of looks too self-serving. And I think in a case like this, the best thing they can do is exactly what they did. That would have been, I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but that really would have been my advice. Don't get into it. It's just, everyone saw what she did. Everybody knows, you know, there's no, there's no need for an explanation to say she doesn't, she doesn't, you know, adhere to the values that we share here and she's gone period. And I think that's, um, that's a great way to, 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 to manage it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the video speaks for itself. It's not as though they yeah. needed to provide any additional context. Um, you know, they, they, Can I ask you a yeah. What if, what if let's say, uh, that morning or the day before, um, she was informed that her father had passed away or some horrific news that, maybe made her, um, or that she could potentially say, uh, you know, changed her personality or her response into something, something that it wouldn't normally be. Is there any kind of line of defense that way that the company would have to consider? What mid- mitigating factors for racism? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, look, employees make these sorts of arguments all the time. They'll say, Hey, look, I was, you know, I wasn't myself. Um, I've been going through a difficult time. You know, perhaps if it's someone who suffers from some mental illness and, you know, they they take medication for something like that, then, yeah, I mean, an employer in those very specific circumstances has, you know, a duty to accommodate an employee up to undue hardship. So they would have to take into consideration, you know, um, a particular mental illness because that is something that would be protected under the the human rights code, at least in the province of Ontario. And again, in most provinces in the country, but this is something different. This isn't like, you know, a woman who, who acted out and, you know, was, was swearing profusely uh, at somebody or, you know, had a, just kind of lost their temper in an isolated moment. <clears throat> the context of the comment was clearly racial and I think that's where, you know, any mitigating factors you might want to throw at it, be it, you know, the examples you gave of a, a parent dying or something else really just wouldn't come into play. And nobody, nobody's going to accept that. A court's not going to accept that in most circumstances. And most employers aren't going to accept that either. And for good reason. Right. You know, I, last point on this, I think, um, I, I, I do hear people telling me sometimes, again, sometimes family members saying that. Racism is not a big deal. It's beaten. You know, people are not racist anymore. And I think this is such a good example of how people are racist because I, I've said to other people, it's not a matter of, um, you know, calling people names or bullying them or doing really overt 
actions or gestures to show racism. It's the more subtle things. And it comes out in moments like this. And I think that's that's really what we saw here. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan, before rudely cutting you off, what was your last point there? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, well, I just wanted, in the interests of context, I mean, I completely agree with your point. But, I mean, and to your point, you know, we're we're two white guys talking about this. Um, and you're right. This is not this is not something that you and I deal with on a on a day to day basis. I mean, I deal with this in my work um, from 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 a client's perspective. But again, it, I, I can't I can't presume uh, pretend to walk in the shoes of of one of those individuals. And it's it's very, very got to be very, very careful when talking about this sort of stuff to your point of friends or family members or whoever saying, you know, we've beaten racism. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, it's just, it's, that's just objectively, objectively false. Um, and the experience of one individual is going to be fundamentally different than the experience of another at all times in any circumstance. This is a very good segue into what I wanted to raise, which is the George Floyd killing. Um, and we've all seen that video as well, or the video of the of the, the Minnesota cop with his knee on George Floyd's neck. And um, I mean, the question that a lot of companies are now asking themselves is, should we take a stand on this issue? And this is something that um, it really does vex companies, uh, all kinds of companies into whether they should wade into social issues. And generally the answer has been, no, it's too dangerous to go into social issues. It, it, it could lose customers, even if it gains customers on one end, the loss on the other end oftentimes won't, won't be able to balance that off or, or to cancel that out. Um, and so it, it, it's always been something difficult for companies to decide. But in this particular case, um, you know, some companies have begun to take action. And I, I want to sort of put this in context and why it's sort of controversial. So Edelman had done a study and found that two thirds of Americans want brands to make their morals clear. They're actually in favor of it. And they say they would adjust their buying preferences as a result of that. Now, the question has always been, do they mean it? Do people really mean that? If, if someone enjoys a certain brand, would they stop using or buying or eating whatever that brand just because of, of the moral stand that they take? And my own feeling is I, I'm not sure. I actually don't know. I think there's probably evidence sort of on both sides of that. And this is something that isn't just restricted to, to the U.S. I mean, uh, in China, it's 78% of consumers uh, want their brands to take a stand. 69% in Brazil, 68% in India. I mean, these are huge countries um, by population. So what we've seen in the George Floyd killing so far, naturally, there's one brand that's out in front, and that's Nike. So, I mean, Nike had their, their campaign with Colin Kaepernick, which indeed was very controversial, but at the end, it resulted in literally billions of dollars of revenue uh, for Nike as a result of that. Um, and I think they're hoping for a, a similar response now. So Nike has released an ad. Um, 
I would like to play it, except for the fact it's just music with words on the screen. So I'll just read through what it says. And again, it says this was sort of, it's just white words on a black screen with music playing, kind of haunting music, uh, sort of meant to strike a bit of an emotional chord. This is what it says. For once, don't do it. Don't pretend there's not a problem in America. Don't turn your back on racism. Don't accept innocent lives being taken from us. Don't make any more excuses. Don't think this doesn't affect you. Don't sit back and be silent. Don't think you can't be part of the change. Let's all be part of the change. How does that make you feel, Ewan, with a, when, a, when a company takes a stand? Not, not just in this case, but this case as well as in general. Well, you know, I think that, that that Nike example is great, and I think what where Nike is probably going to going to to benefit from this and and fare well um, is that there was a precedent, right? They established a precedent with the with the Kaepernick campaign, um, and yeah, they got a lot of flack. They got a lot of flack for that. Um, now, financially, they certainly benefited from it, but they they've sort of established with that campaign that you know what we're willing to put controversial social issues front and center because you know we're a company that takes these takes these issues seriously so i think with that sort of established precedent it it perhaps gave them a little more leeway to try and tackle this issue um do i think it's a good thing fundamentally for for companies to do yeah i think in i think in certain circumstances i I think where it gets really difficult is it's such a fine line between getting the tone right on these issues um, and then, and just getting it so fundamentally wrong. I, you know, I've, I've, I've had the same thought around general COVID-19 campaigns from companies. We've seen a lot of companies coming out and effectively trying to, trying to demonstrate that, Hey, you know, we're using this as an opportunity to reflect and take care of our employees and blah, 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 blah. But frankly, a lot of those campaigns for me have just felt like advertorial advertorial content. I didn't really feel like it struck the tone such that they were really speaking to what's going on and the state of things. Rather, it was just, hey, don't forget us and remember to buy our stuff. Um, So when you're tackling an issue like this, I think that tone is even more, it's even an even finer line. But I think for the companies that are able to do it well, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, and you make such a good point there. Um, if it is seen as being opportunistic or capitalizing on a on a negative or controversial situation for your own business gain, I think you risk a very strong public backlash. And that's why this isn't normally advised. And I mean, in my perspective, and I, I imagine in, in if you were giving legal advice as well, I mean, you want to minimize risk as much as possible. So when you look at a situation like this, you say, okay, you know, this is the, the right moral stand to take. So should we take it? And then when you take a look at it, you think, okay, but there are a lot of people that don't agree with this. And do we want to alienate them or not? And um, I mean, oftentimes the easy answer is just do nothing. Just keep your head down. Don't attract attention and, you know, just focus on growing your business um, sort of behind the scenes and, and run campaigns that are not not divisive or, or confrontational. And, and that generally really would be my advice for the most part. But, you know, if, if, if you do want to go forward with this, there's sort of four key things that I think uh, a company would have to consider on this sort of thing. And, and number one is know your audience. 
know who your customers are, know what they like, know what they feel, know what they're interested in, know how they respond to things. Because that is so important. I mean, a lot of this, if you're going to wade into these hot button issues, you do have to be prepared for some of what the blowback might be. And I think if you know your customers and you know the people that you're dealing with, you'll have a better idea of what kind of blowback that might be. Which is also sort of the the second point, which is the company has to do it with its eyes open. I think there would have to be a risk analysis on this. And I know this sounds very dry, but it really is just sort of doing due diligence, taking a look and saying, you know, what is the worst case scenario if we do this, you know? Um, you know, what could the result be? And can we live with that? Are we okay with that? Does this jeopardize our brand image long-term or not? Does it jeopardize our business long-term or not? Um, and, and have those discussions as well. And then the third point, which we just touched on, which is don't seem opportunistic. You know, it's, it's, it is that fine line between, you know, sort of siding with a, a moral or just cause or trying to sell more shoes. And I think Nike has done a good job and I think deserves quite a bit of credit. I mean, the Colin Kaepernick, um, the Colin Kaepernick campaign was divisive. It got a lot of attention, but at the end of the day, you know, I do think most Americans would side with, um, having to deal with police brutality, especially now. So when you take a look at that, I'm sure Nike did look at that and said, you know, we are comfortable going forward this with this. We know it is going to turn off some people, but are those people customers of Nike to begin with? And if they are, how many are there? And maybe there weren't enough to, to, to justify um, a change. And then the fourth point is, you know, ensure whatever you're taking a stand on does align with your brand identity and with your audience. I mean, it would be very strange if Cathay Pacific took a stand on the, on the George Floyd murder. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not aligned. You, you do have to take a look at, um, you know, the people that are most concerned or the people that are most impacted by something. And are they your customers? Are those the people that believe in you and trust you as well? And I think, you know, Nike also has done a good job there because yes, I think, you know, uh, the black community in the United States is, is a, is a big, um, it's a big profit base for Nike. And I think also just young people in general and uh, sort of more liberal minded people with, you know, more social, social values and sort of things like that um, tend to be, my guess is they tend to be more Nike, Nike customers. Um, and the last thing you and I just wanted to mention, and Nike wasn't the only company to do something. The other was Reebok. And I thought they came out with just a fabulous line. They did a similar ad to Nike. I'll read it. It's shorter, but it says without the black community, Reebok would not exist. America would not exist. We are not asking you to buy our shoes. We're asking you to walk in someone else's. And I thought that was an excellent, excellent brand message. I thought that was actually more powerful than Nike's. And um, I think they were able to address the business issue in their statement. We are not asking you to buy our shoes. And I think I think that also is a, is a good thing to do. I, I don't think it's easy to work in a line like that, but it does address that one concern, one of those concerns that I that I raised earlier. Yeah, and I think it's also it's you know it's bold. I think we we talked about that very very fine line of getting the tone right, but you also have to keep in mind we're dealing with a a pretty sophisticated audience now in terms of one that's subjected to constant bombardment of advertising in every way shape and form online now um and audiences have become pretty well attuned to recognizing when somebody's just trying to sell them something 
versus trying to convey, you know, a, a message that is that is compelling and engaging. And for that reason, I think you do have to be bold in your particular sentiment. You can't say, oh, well, you know, we'd like to go out 100% on a limb here, but, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've got to think about, are we going to get flack? Is there going to be blowback? So let's just do it halfway. You can't do it halfway. And to your point, I think that, I, and I hadn't heard that that Reebok, um, that slogan or, the, or seen the ad. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that goes out on a limb that goes out on a limb. It, it is bold in its assertion of this isn't about our shoes. This is about something much bigger than that. And I think that's the kind of messaging that still resonates with people and still demonstrates that, you know, advertising um, can still play, can still play a role and can still be compelling when utilized properly. For sure. And, you know, my advice still would be not to wait into these issues most of the time. And, and that's only because I think most most executives are very risk averse. And that's unfortunate because I think you look at Nike, you look at Reebok, you look at what they're doing. You know, I, I, I admire that a lot. And I admire it because it's not just PR people or marketing people or agencies doing this. It has to have buy-in from the very, very top. And then, you know, people at that executive level, you know, beyond just the, the CEO, uh, because this is fraught with risk. It's fraught with real business risk. And usually when something is optional, you know, but could bring risk, you know, the option is always just not to do it. You know, why wade into that when it could have a bad outcome? Um, you know, it's safer just to, just to do nothing. So I, I think it's important. I think that the, the corporate world needs a bit more of this actually, uh, because I, you know, very big picture. We are living in a time where, uh, you know, things are getting much worse in many ways. And I think if, if, if governments are failing, which appears they are in many parts of the world, um, you know, there is there is room for corporations to step up in this way uh, and to be counted on on one side or another. All right. Well, uh, you and uh, we are actually we're doing pretty well. I mean, we're right on time again. Um, any recommendations this week? You and you mentioned something off the top that, that you wanted to recommend. Yeah. I mean, the, the speech by Killer Mike. Check it out. We'll um, we'll we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, just really just going back to what we were just discussing of really sort of getting the tone the tone right on on the issue um he just he really nails it um it's quite an emotional speech and and again i wish that there were more politicians in the united states that were prepared to to stand up um and strike that kind of tone um that 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 killer mike strikes really well worth uh, well worth your time yeah send me that link you and i'll put it uh put it in the show notes uh, so people can find that i have not seen it either so so i'm actually looking forward to to checking that out um and i do want to mention at the off the top we had that wonderful endorsement we want to think thank jl colvin for that and he's a very well-known trump impersonator these days and um you know I, I actually have a couple of minutes of audio from him that is absolutely hilarious and i think we'll 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 drop it in from time to time so you can get little bits of it but um uh, it's great that that he's supporting the show and we really really appreciate that um okay so if you do enjoy this show please tell a friend you know we have been shocked in the last 14 days, the download rates and the subscription rates have shot up in a huge way. So we really, really appreciate that. Uh, and we take your support very seriously and we, we want to put on a good show each week. So if you do uh, enjoy it, please, please spread the word. It means a lot. You can also follow us on social media. We're at PR law podcast, PR law podcast. 
and we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you want to listen to us on YouTube, we're over there as well. Uh, anything else you want to add, Ewan, before we wrap this up? No, just, you know, uh, stay safe. And and as Cam pointed out, we love the support. We really, really enjoy doing, doing the show. We want to continue to grow our audience. We want to continue to make the show better. So, you know, if you have any feedback, if you have any any issues or or topics you'd like us to tackle, let us know. Let us know. And, and thanks so much for tuning in. And I will say, too, you know, um, Ewan's obviously a very busy guy. I mean, we're in different time zones. I'm in, I'm in Asia and obviously my job is very busy as well. We literally do not go over this, this show rundown before we hit the air. (laughs) We don't have time. So a lot, a lot of podcasts, you know, the hosts will actually review it and work on it and discuss it in advance. We're hitting this cold most of the time. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we apologize if there's any errors, but we're just happy to uh, get a bit of time to record it each week. Um, And that, that really matters to us. So, for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you so much for listening to the PR on Law podcast. We'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.